Welcome to Sounds Erotic, the voices of erotica. Allow me to tell you a little about the show. Sounds Erotic is a weekly podcast that introduces you to the most unique, interesting, and successful people in erotica. We will explore topics that you might never have considered and introduce you to forms of erotica that pique more than just your interest. Leading you on this journey will be me. Who am I? My name is Alex Anders, and as an erotica author, I have published more than 40 titles. My stories have been translated into German, Spanish, French, and you can find a lot of them as audiobooks narrated by yours truly. I have always been drawn to all forms of sex, so I have written stories for both men and women, whether you are straight, gay, or bi. All of my stories can be found at alexandersbooks.com, and I look forward to you checking it out. But that's enough about me. More importantly, I am very pleased to have as my guest today, Artemis Hunt, otherwise known as Aphrodite Hunt. Welcome. Hello, everyone. And you write a lot of work in a subgenre called hardcore BDSM, correct? Correct. That means I'm going to have a lot of questions for you. Great. However, before we begin, I would like to ask you the most important question first. What do you like most about sex? What do I like most about sex? Well, the fact that uh, I think uh, some people find it easier to write than others. And I'm one of those people who really, really find it very easy to be very descriptive about it in every way possible. So, quick story about the first time I saw my first Aphrodite Hunt book. It was when, if you remember Bookstrand, when they used to allow independent authors to publish on their site. Yes, that's true. Crummy, isn't it? You know, they banned me from their site. Boy, times change when it comes to erotica. Sometimes they love you, sometimes they don't. Well, most of the time, I'm finding that they hate us. <laughs> Out of their bookstores, you know, it's kind of like uh, putting us in the uh, back shelves of some uh, dusky little storeroom. Uh, I'm finding that that's the uh, online equivalent of doing that to us. And it's very interesting, too, because it seems that our readers will find us and they love the material, especially nowadays where uh, many conversations have gone on on the forum that we spend time together on. How to get into the hot new releases, it used to be on Amazon, there's a ranking system, and yes. uh, the higher you're ranking, the, you know, of course, the better your book does. And to get onto the hot new release list, only a month ago in the erotica section, used to be only 27,000. It would get you to the number 100 in the top hot new release list. Yes. And now it takes you as high as uh, 7,500. That's amazing, isn't it? And not only that, it's the Erotica Top 100 at Amazon. In just a couple of months ago, as you and I probably know, you could get a book in 3,000, something like within the 3,000s, and it would be in the Top 100, correct? Yep. Well, yesterday or just a couple of days ago, I had one book at 1,700, and it wasn't even listed in the Top 100. This shows how much it takes to get into the Top 100 list these days. And it shows how strong this is as a category. I know, I know. And I think there's a lot of erotic romances thrown into the mix right now because a lot of the books up there are not pure erotica. It's kind of like erotic romance. Erotic romance is very, very strong right now. Would you like to read a little hardcore BDSM erotica? Then check out my international best-selling short stories, Bread for the Billionaire's Heir and Serving the Billionaire. 
in ebook and audiobook read by me, available on Amazon, iTunes, and wherever books are sold. Enjoy them today. How many books have you written? I wouldn't call them books. They're actually novelettes. They're about like 10,000 words each and sometimes they go up to novellas which are about 18,000 to 23,000. Mm-hmm. I even have some short novels at 30,000 or 32,000 words. So I don't think it's fair to call them books. And I've always stated what exactly they are in my descriptions so that the readers will really, really know what they're getting into. I think I would have around just under 50 right now, 50 of these kinds of stories. And how many of those have ended up in the top 100 on various websites? For Amazon, top 100 erotica, I think I've had 21. 21 books in the top 100 erotica section. 21 stories, stories. Stories. I wouldn't call them books. Stories. Stories. I've had eight in the Barnes & Noble Top 100. The complete store, Top 100. It's not erotica because I don't think they have subcategories in Barnes & Noble. In Barnes & Noble, would they be closer to erotic romance or would they be erotica? Well, what happens in Barnes & Noble is I think I'm a best judge of this because I have contrasting books in their lists. Well, I, I know exactly how much each of them sells. So what I noticed is that the erotic romances, they allow them to climb that category. So they allow me to be in the top 100. But for my straight erotica, even though I sell just as many books or slightly less, I noticed that they actually dog them. They put the 1,000 points on top of your ranking so that you'll never rise above uh, position 1,000. I know this because I have one book that's selling at about a rate that would be equivalent to it being in the number 400 ranks and it's still at 3000 something so i would know which book is this open your legs for my family it's one of my sequels it's a short story it would be a hardcore bdsm story Yes. I'm not surprised, but because they've allowed eight of my erotic romances to grace their top 100 list, I didn't kick up that much of a fuss. Besides, I'm on my own also bought, so people will find the book anyway. Right. Yeah. Well, I'm going to ask you a lot more about that, but before we get into that, let's go back a little bit and find out where were you born? Uh, Kuala Lumpur, Malaysia. And did you grow up there? Yes, I'm here right now. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> which means that the difference in time zone is, is a great deal between there and Los Angeles. Yes, it's my lunch hour and I'm at work. <laughs> Whereas I am going to be going to bed in a couple of hours. I know. But what did your parents do growing up? Uh, my mom, she is an income tax officer and uh, that's uh, IRS for you. And my father is an electrical engineer. And were they both readers? My mom is a big reader and a writer. My dad, no. Was your mother a large influence on your reading habits growing up? Yes, she always made sure that we read a lot. So the whole family reads and writes. I've got an uncle who's an oncologist. He writes for the New York Times and the International Herald Tribune. Oh, wow. Yeah, the whole family writes. And because they're mostly doctors, a lot of them have published a lot of papers everywhere in the world. And they write a lot of articles and journals and uh, medical books as well, in addition to the uh, lighter writing. So it's a family thing. And when did you start writing? Professionally? No, just when did you write your first story? Oh, H2, I think. (laughs) (laughs) Do you happen to remember what it's about? I drew a lot of comics. So I I was uh, big into comics. So I I made my own comics with little bubbles for conversations and all that. I read early, so I started early. I could speak and read and write when I was 
too. So I started doing that. And I have very vivid memories of exactly what I drew. I actually drew pictures of naked women when I was two years old. Would you believe that? Really? I know. What do you think influenced that? I had no idea. I don't know. A high awareness early on, a psychological. I, I'm not a psychologist, okay? I qualified as a medical doctor, but I never took psychology. So I guess as some kids are more uh, sexually aware when they're younger. I'm one of those kids. Malaysia is a very conservative culture, isn't it? No, not really. Not really? <laughs> not really. There are some people who are very conservative who are trying to press it to the rest of us, and the rest of us just don't give a damn. <laughs> so it, is it a freer culture? Uh. If you're saying, are they gay bars and all that, clubs where you can do whatever you want? No, it's not like in Germany where, you know, you can walk into the club and there's some BDSM thing going on, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, we don't have BDSM clubs, but we certainly have a lot of gay clubs mm -hmm. and a lot of bars where you can pick up anybody and do whatever you like, but not in public. You can just go to some back room. So what was your favorite book growing up? Well, I read a lot of Annie Blyton. I'm not sure if uh, Americans know her, but she's a British author. Uh, we're very British influenced, so I read a lot of British books growing up. And what did you like about those stories? Well, she wrote to a certain uh, style. All her stories had kids who were at 11 or 12. They were always uh, touring the English countryside without parental supervision. And that was cool. Hmm. Yeah, I, I think you can do that in the 40s because most of her books were written pre-war. But the world today is uh, a lot more dangerous than it was in the 40s. Hmm, interesting. Hmm. And did you write throughout high school and college? Uh, yes, I wrote a lot of stories. I was the editor of the uh, my school magazine. And yes, I made sure there was a lot of output even then. And when was the first time you published professionally? I started writing for newspapers. I had my own columns in the newspapers. I still do today. And I think that was at age 22. And what type of stories would you write for the newspaper? I didn't write stories. I wrote columns on, uh, I wrote on health. I was a columnist for sexual advice, believe it or not. <laughs> uh, I wrote on entertainment. I'm an entertainment writer even to this day. I'm talking about movies and stuff. And I wrote on all sorts of subjects, everything that you can think of. I mean, just like, you know, if you open the pages of Cosmopolitan, that, that kind of article, you know, I would write that. Hmm. I still can do it today, you know. And when did you first become interested in BDSM? I liked reading BDSM. So I think I first read my first BDSM book when I was like 12 years old. That was The Story of O. Which is a very famous mommy porn book, actually. Yeah, it is. It is. It's very famous. And how do you think it influenced you? I didn't read BDSM for a long time after that. Just read whatever I could because they were my uncle's books. And my uncle has the greatest collection of erotica ever. <laughs> it was amazing. <laughs> And so he always told me that if I'm caught reading any of those books, because he stayed with us, he was a medical student at the time, he stayed with us in, in our house, and he said if I was caught reading any of the books, he'd spank me. And that galvanized me to read even more of them <laughs> in of secret. So I know. So uh, I read that. Well, I read whatever he had, but most of what he had was straight erotica. It wasn't BDSM. It was like uh, Emmanuel. Emmanuel is not BDSM at all. So that, that kind of book. But uh, he had Marquis de Sade, that was, yeah, that was BDSM, and he had a lot of books. And he was very into uh, porn, which is cool. He was a cool uncle. <laughs> I know. And the first BDSM story that you wrote? It was actually in October 2011, last year. That was the first BDSM story that I wrote. Oh. Yes. Did you write erotica before BDSM? 
No, never. I've never written erotica before. This is my first time since October 2011. That was my first. And what was the inspiration? Well, I was perusing the、uh, top 100 Amazon list, and I saw Gia Blue. She had a book bent over. It was very high up on the list. Now I cannot download Kindle stories. I can't do it because、uh, of where I am, Asia. We are barred from downloading Kindle stories, so I couldn't buy it. I couldn't purchase anything from Kindle store, and I actually do have a Kindle on my computer. So I read the description and I saw that it was like five thousand something words. I mean, Jia can confirm that for me. But、uh, I was thinking, hey, I can write that too. So, so I did, and I wrote my first story in five hours, and I put it up. Was that first story Prince Myro? No, that was Open Your Legs for Me. It was a very, very successful short story. It's literally a short story because it's only five thousand eight hundred words, and it went up to like number one seventy in the entire Amazon store. It sold twenty two thousand copies on its own, and、uh, it sparked a lot of sequels. And so it was also in top thirty of romance for Amazon, although it wasn't technically a romance book, and I had a lot of complaints about that. So that was the very first story I wrote. So the very first story you wrote. You went to number one seventy on Amazon. Yeah. <laughs> All the writers listening right now, I'm sure, are just chuckling because that's almost unheard of. No, I'm sure it happens a lot of to a lot of people. Okay. <laughs> a Kelly Gamer. It happened to her. Oh, also the question is: Is that her first stories, or is it from another another pen name that she's、know. writing? We, we don't, don't know. know. So hard to tell. Yeah, we don't know. So, for all of our listeners, can you please define hardcore BDSM? I use very explicit language, and I don't pull back. I just write whatever is on my mind. There's no like you know in some erotic romances, softcore ones, if you will,、mm -hmm. uh, they 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 won't mention you know genitalia, actual genitalia, you know. Yeah. But、uh, I have no such inhibitions. But it goes beyond that, doesn't it? Yes, I will describe exactly what goes on. I mean, I don't want to pull any punches. Basically, I'm sorry I can't compare with what other writers do because of my problem in Asia that I can't download a lot of books, so I can't buy a lot of my friends' books. But I would say that the story of O, for example, doesn't mention the word pussy even once. It's always like belly. You know, he uses the word belly. So I don't pull any. I, I mention whatever I want. And also with the story of open your legs for me. Yes. There are chains. There are clamps. Yes. Yeah. All that stuff is very very hardcore. And as the story progresses in other installments, it gets very very hardcore. There's a lot of pain involved. There's even non-consent in some manner or other, and it's very well. How do I get all my ideas? I invented them, to be honest. So I I can't really compare to. Whatever's out there, it's not something you wish that you do on your own. But it's like one of my readers wrote in a review. It's like a, I like reading her story, but I don't necessarily want it to happen to me. <laughs> yeah, which is a lot of stories. I mean, I think it's the fantasy of it. So I wrote、uh, pseudo incest when it was very popular. Yes, and it's all about daddies with their young daughters or daddies with their young sons with their stepsons. Yeah, people like that. And no one actually wants this to happen to them, and no one actually wants this to happen to anyone else. But The fantasy of thinking about it is titillating. I know, and that's what we want to read. Titillating. I mean, who really, really wants to be a sex slave to some dictator? By the way, <laughs> right. 
Get on your knees, he ordered. Jasmine didn't budge. She wanted punishment. When his steely eyes tightened, she knew she was going to get it. Jassar tossed her to her knees and walked away to grab a candle. Letting it burn for a while, he dropped the hot wax on her still tender ass. It delighted her. It burned for merely a second, but soon came the rush of pleasure. Jassar was a master after all. He would bring her to the point of almost unbearable pain, but then at the last moment pull her back, bringing her pleasure. To listen to more of international best-selling story, Bread for the Billionaire's Heir, get it on iTunes and on Audible.com. Enjoy it today. What do you think it is, though, about the humiliation or the pain involved with a hardcore BDSM story that people enjoy? What is it? Well, I think it's like surrendering completely to another person, surrendering your will and just uh, being dominated completely. It's the same with the pseudo incest stories, the daddy stories. It's like being dominated by a figure in authority and people respond to that. They like that. It's like a capture fantasy, you know, and capture fantasies are like really popular, you know, as well. Whether you be captured and ravaged by a pirate or somebody in, you know, somebody position. And in our world today, figures of authority become like our bosses or someone richer than us, like a billionaire, our daddies, older brothers, teachers, professors, you know, people in authority and people fantasize about that. I don't think they really like that in real life. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So people fantasize about completely giving up power and being helpless and being desired, most of all, that you're so desired that he wants you and takes you right in the elevator or, you know, the pool table or whatever. And women respond to that. And what do you think is the most extreme story that you've written? Extreme. Possibly as part of the initiation series, the sequels to Open Your Legs for Me, that was before I found out that non-consent was a no-no. So that was the days before Amazon docked non-consent. So a lot of it bordered on non-consent. And also my Prince Miro series, it was a gay series. And it's non-consent because he's a sex slave in a, a fantasy world that's probably much like Spartacus. So uh, that was really non-consent. Those are extreme. And that was before I found out that I couldn't really do that. I was a new writer. We all wrote things before we realized we couldn't do it. <laughs> I just got a book blocked today on Amazon again. So... <laughs> You, oh, you poor thing. Why? I got a book blocked once because I didn't know that the consent age in America was 18 and my protagonist was like 17. Mm. So I didn't know that. You see, I learned all of it when I went along. <laughs> it's a slow evolving process. I think when you start off writing, you just go to some place in your mind and it just kind of comes out. Yeah. And then you start learning people like reading this and people like reading that. And then you interpret it into your own, your own special form of it. And you have no conception of what's allowed and what's not allowed because it's all fantasy. Nothing is real. Nothing's actually happening to anybody. Exactly. It's all in your mind. And then finally, things like the PayPal situation comes out and they say they won't sponsor pseudo incest and Amazon won't allow dubious consent. And I know. And at that time, I had so many books which were dubious consent. And I had to stop writing dubious consent, literally. What is the one that you most wish was still available, more easily available? 
Well, I have never written, not really, pseudo-incest. I've only written one story ever and other pseudo-incest. But I wish they would allow real incest because I would like to explore that. When, when I was growing up, I was reading this uh, book called Flowers in the Attic and all its sequels. There was real incest and it was very titillating. You know, someone else mentioned that I did an interview with another author and they mentioned the exact same book and I told the story then, I'll, I'll tell it again now, that when I was a kid, I was not a, a reader. I was not a writer. I was slightly dyslexic, so my mother was always doing things to encourage me to read. And one of the things she did was that she would read The Flowers in the Attic book to me. <laughs> but it seems that she skipped a lot of parts because apparently there are things going on in that book that I had no idea about. Flowers in the Attic was written by a man. I mean, sorry, it was written by a woman. She died and all the sequels were subsequently taken over by a man. B.C. Andrews is a man now? B.C. Andrews is a man. Uh, he's actually Andrew Neiderman. Oh, wow. Yeah. So what do you think it is that really makes your stories stand out as they have? What made your story go to 170 on your first release? I have no idea. I think it's a little bit of a combination of luck, maybe. I, I really have no idea. I, I don't know. Uh, my cover is enticing, I guess. What do your reviewers and your fans say? I have two different type of readers, one who love me to death and the others who hate me to death. So uh, I'm very polarizing. It's like whether you love it or you hate it. <laughs> what are the ones that love you say? It's very inventive. They can really experience everything while reading the story. And, you know, I'll let them live it in their minds when they're reading it so they can actually feel it or whatever they want to feel. And the ones who don't like me thinks I'm bordering on non-consent and there's no romance in it. And what's been your most popular story? Well, the one that is the oldest is, the you know, because it's had a lot of months to sell. So that was the one because by nature of it being really old. But I've started writing erotic romances since June. I wrote my first erotic romance and it's in June when I was in Chicago, actually. I was in my hotel room feeling jet lag. And so I wrote a erotic romance just to see whether I can do it because uh, I'm actually not a very romantic person. And I seem to be doing relatively well on it by having eight of them in the uh, Barnes & Noble's top 100. So I think they are actually going to be surpassing my straight erotica pretty soon the way they're going. This is, what's the title of this series? I have two erotic romance series running. I call it one is a made for the billionaire prince. Yeah, I'm one of those who cashed in on the billionaire phenomenon. <laughs> Aren't we all? The other is called Bound and Shackled to the Billionaire. The books have all also got into Amazon Top 100 Erotica. And what about His Indecent Proposal? His Indecent Proposal is a uh, both got as high as number 22 in Barnes & Noble. And it's right now in the Amazon Top 100 Erotica. And it's a short story. It's 10,000 words. And it has a bit of BDSM in it, but not hardcore. I've learned that erotic romance readers don't like hardcore. And what would you say is your favorite story? The one that I enjoyed writing the most or my favorite story as in the one because it sold the most for me? <laughs> <laughs> well, either one. Which one did you enjoy writing the most? I would say Mysterious Desire, erotic romance. The very first billionaire erotic romance that I uh, wrote. And it's sequels because I really, for me, I'm, I'm not that great a plotter, but I really plotted this really well. Because my reviews will also say that that I really, really plotted this well. People don't see what's coming in the next book. There's a lot of suspense, political suspense, royal intrigue, and all that. And 
I really threw curveballs in every book at every step of the way, and uh, I like writing that. Could you tell us what the plot of that story is? It starts off with a hotel maid being seduced by a stranger in a men's restroom, and she discovers that he's actually a prince of a European nation. She thinks that it's just a one-off thing, but he keeps coming back for her, and she's really suspicious. It's like, you know, why would you want? What do you want with me? I'm not that particularly pretty, or you know, I don't have that great a personality, and all that. So that's why it's called mysterious desire. She doesn't understand why he's so into her, and at the end of that story, he tells her exactly why. And what is your favorite story? Looking back at it, not necessarily because of how much it sold, but just because you thought, "Wow, I, I did a really great job with that." Hmm. I think that I, it's still mysterious desire. That that's the one. I think I really did a great job with the entire series. Okay. A mysterious desire was uh, yesterday. It was at number eleven on Barnes and Noble. Oh, Oh, Aphrodite, I envy you so much. Uh, not really. I mean, it. I think it's a little bit of luck. And, and you know, Barnes and Noble charts are volatile, so very, you know, they don't stay there very long. So it goes up and down. I don't think you're giving yourself enough credit. I think that people are drawn to your writing style and people read one of your books and they come back for more. And everyone has a little bit of luck to allow them to be where they are. But always in the back of that luck is talent. So I think you're shorting yourself a little bit there. Well... I don't know. I have months that I sell really well. I have months that I sell, you know, not so well. This month that I'm on track to, well, I'm on track to selling 50,000 books. So it's been a good month. But, you know, I have months that I will not sell that many books. This business, it's an up and down thing. And that's why I still have a day job. Right, though this is a slow season and you just sold 50,000 copies of your stories. (laughs) (laughs) Well, they are short stories, so it's possible. But like I said, I have friends, and so do you, who sell phenomenally a lot more than either of us. And we have also friends who sell less. But in general, if I can sort of like make an observation, I think erotica writers generally earn more and sell more than the average Kindlebot writer. Is that a fair observation? I think on average, yes. Yes. But also taking into account that where we hang out, we have a community of erotic writers and we're always supporting each other and pushing each other along. And what has happened over there is that our work ethic has phenomenally increased. So we are all constantly writing new stories and we're always finding out new techniques of how to market, uh, how to write better stories. And I think all of that, our hard work and all of our study comes into play with how much we make. Yes. And the thing is, we are able to put out a lot of stories in a very short period of time on the very fact that we don't make them very long. So uh, our output is quite huge. The volume of things we can put out to remain on the uh, algorithms, you know. So I think that matters a lot. Whereas in the you know, the rest of the journals, you can't really do that. Unless you're Hugh Howie, of course. Right. So, yeah, you have to write full-length books. And also, it's almost like being at a class when I'm on that forum. Everyone's always coming up with new ideas of how to do things or new things to be explored. Or it really is a group of people on the cutting edge of the ebook revolution. Yes, yes. 
And a lot of these people are actually pioneers in the a trend that they are setting. So they actually set the trend for erotica around the world. And, you know, we are part of that group. And it's a very uh, awe-inspiring group, I might say. Yes, which allows all of us to work even harder every day. So, so yeah, we do tend to make more, but I think it's a lot because of that. Yes, yes. I think uh, another genre that the writers actually put out a lot and they make a lot of money is the romance, of course, you know, straight romance. Right. And the writers there do very, very well. Uh, but the other works generally have to be longer. Now, this is what bad girls get. The leather straps connected with Rachel's bare ass with a series of loud slaps. Ah, <gasps> she groaned. It was the surprise that inspired her sounds, not the pain. She could barely feel it over the vibrator. The second smack stood out a little more, and as each hit got harder, the two sensations blended together, dampening her swollen lips. With Rachel realizing that she could take more, she pleaded for him to hit harder. To her surprise, he didn't. What he did instead was turn down the vibrator to barely a rumble. With nothing to counter the sting, the full pain from her glowing ass flooded her mind. In a second, she couldn't move. To listen to more of international best-selling story, Serving the Billionaire, get it on iTunes and Audible.com. Enjoy it today. What is something that you reveal in your stories that you might not otherwise reveal of yourself? That I like BDSM. (laughs) (laughs) And do your characters all share characteristics? Yes, because I write a lot of BDSM, so my characters have to be submissive. And I can do doms as well, but usually my protagonist is a submissive. Usually female? Yes. Only reason is because I noticed that female trending books sell better than male ones. I love to do males, though. (laughs) I love to do gay stories. (laughs) Have you done many of them? Yes, uh, my Prince Miro series is a gay series, but uh, I noticed that, I mean, it sells a lot. There's no no doubt about it. But in contrast to my female protects, uh, it doesn't sell as well as my female protects. So I have very limited time to write because I have a full-time job. So I have to go where the money is. And what do you think the difference is with writing a submissive male character and a submissive female character? Gosh, I haven't written a gay submissive male for so long that I don't remember what they do. (laughs) (laughs) I think that their mindset, uh, I mean, I, I got onto this TV series really late, and but I love it to death. Queer as folk, it was on Showtime. Yes. Yeah, yeah. So if uh, where they go by their mindset is they also want to be dominated. They want to submit to some more powerful male than they are. It's the same kind of mindset, actually. So when you wrote Prince Miro, you kind of go into it with the same sort of mindset as when you write the characters of Open Your Legs for Me? Yes, because I was inspired by Spartacus. I love Spartacus, you know. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I wanted to write something in that world. And I was also inspired by Game of Thrones because that Khal Drogo, you know, the storyline. So I love I loved the character. I love the, the people in that world, you know. So you've mentioned a couple of times that you have a full-time job. What is your typical day like? Uh, well, I would wake up in the morning. I'm one of those people who check my sales obsessively because I have so much uh, access, you know, because I'm in my own room and I have access to the computer 24-7. So why not just check sales, you know? So I check my sales in the morning 
and I update my spreadsheet. I have an Excel spreadsheet, which I just updated. You know, it's a money spreadsheet. And then I would go to work and they would take me 30 to 40 minutes to go to work. And then I would start the day with all my emails and I'll go bug everybody. And then I'll come back. And if I have downtime during my job, I would write. I'll check sales. <laughs> <laughs> I know. <laughs> and is during the day when you get most of your writing done? Actually, no, it's during the night. Once I go home, I would go to the gym and then I would, you know, I have a mate, so she'll make dinner and me and my husband would eat dinner. And after that, he will be doing his stuff and I'll be writing. We'll do it together. You know, I just be writing. And how long would you write for at night? Uh, It depends because I'm not a continuous writer. I'm actually not as disciplined as that. I have to write a little pause and look at a website and then I'll come back and write another few sentences and then I'll pause and uh, I'll download the YouTube video and watch something and then I'll pause and I'll write again. (laughs) I'm very undisciplined in that way, but I can write continuously. How long does it take you to finish a, let's say, a 10,000 word story? Mm, Less than a week. Oh. And what do you think it is that makes you just so passionate about writing? Because it sounds like you have a very full life and Lord knows if I did a full-time job, I would not write a lick. Really? No, I don't think so. I've never had to. In my world, I've always, one point I was working as a producer, I would work for three months on an assignment and then take two months off and write during those two months and then go back to another assignment and then take time off. I, I never really wrote at the same time as working a full job. Not even when you're writing a script? Generally speaking, no. When I was writing scripts, I was doing promo producing for a big network here and they would be periods where I'd work for four days and then I have two days off and then I'd work for three more days and and off schedules like that which would allow me to write in between I, I just I don't think I have the energy because my job is a creative job I don't have the energy to be creative at work and then come home and be creative at home yeah well I have a friend who lives very close to you yes She's also the producer. She's also trying to be a writer. And she's going to join our Erotica Forum soon because she just wrote her first erotic romance. Yes. Cool, isn't it? Congratulations. So, yeah, she says the same, exact same thing as you did. Because when she was a producer for a very big network, she just didn't have the juice in her to write at home, you know, because it took so much of her time. And, you know, her boss would drive her crazy with a request for a change in the script at 11 o'clock at night. And she had to do it, you know. Mm-hmm. So she'd say the exact same thing as you. Yeah. yeah. It's only now that she's no longer in the business that she can actually sit down and write. And that's me as well. Now I can I can do nine hours. I can literally write for nine hours, like fingers on keyboards for nine hours. Wow. What discipline. But I have to do it. I can't work another job. I have to just do that if I'm going to write. That is amazing. Nine hours. That's a full-time job. <laughs> that, is, that is. I realized something recently. Uh, just... Two days ago, actually, a friend of mine asked me what I did on the weekend. And I said, oh, I took Saturday off and just rested. And then I stopped and thought about it and realized that I worked for 10 hours. And then I did laundry. Oh. And that, in my mind, in my memory, I count that as a day off. <laughs> oh, gosh. You know what? I went to stay with my friend in Hollywood Hills just a couple of months ago. So I, I knew her schedule, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, she, she was no longer in the network, you know, and she did consulting work. 
So what she'll do is she'll write throughout the entire day, just like you, nine hours, you know, in- incredible. She was incredible discipline. And we'll stop for two hours. That's when I was writing Mysterious Desire with her. So, and we'd go to Runyon Canyon and just go and scout it out and just go up the hill, you know, and then we'd buy a banana to sit on top of Mulholland Drive and just look out and say that, what should we write next? And, you know, and then we'd go back and start again. And then maybe take in a movie at the Grove, you know, at uh, at night. And that's just for a rest. And then we go back at 10 o'clock and start again, you know. So I think we take just take a little breaks. And I, I certainly do. Uh, by the way, she's writing full time. I'm the one who's surfing the net halfway and, you know, <laughs> replying emails. And I don't have that discipline. But I'm very, very fast when I actually do write. I have to say, the lifestyle that writing erotica has allowed me is just incredible. Because yes, I do work for nine hours, and I can, and that's just writing time. I don't do that every day, but that's my writing time. And then after that, I'll I'll actually work for another, I'll work for another four hours or something like that, five hours. I can put in extremely long days, but it also allows me to have breakfast with friends every Friday, and it allows me to go to a movie whenever I want, or go scuba diving, or go. The lifestyle that erotica writing has allowed me, and I know has allowed so many other people, is just, just wonderful. God bless the Kindle and eBooks. I know it's amazing, isn't it? I hope to embrace that sort of lifestyle one day, but I still have to have a day job because I have to pay off a couple of mortgages. I, ha- I think I just invested a bit too much, so I have to pay off all my properties, and then only I can, if I'm, I make myself independently wealthy for the rest of my life, then I would be able to retire early because I'm quite young still. And uh, that's my goal, to retire really early and so that I can go into this full-time. But I have to make myself independently wealthy first, which means I don't have to work a single day for the rest of my life, even if my books don't take off anymore. Well, certainly the fact that you've sold 50,000 stories September, which is considered a very slow month, really says something about the potential of you being able to retire early. Well, you don't know that, you see, because you can sell that much in a month and then you sell, you know, a lot less in the next month. It's the nature of the business, just like uh, working in Hollywood, I mean, on projects rather than just having a steady job, is very volatile. It's mostly like uh, there are some months you're going to do better and some months you're going to do less. And it's kind of like having your own grocery business or laundry business and all that. There's no different. It's not a steady job. And I have been brought up to believe that steady jobs are the ones that pay the bills. And that's why I still kept my steady job. Not to mention that it's a great job. I I get paid a lot and I don't really do that much, to be honest. (laughs) (laughs) No, to be honest. Yeah. To be honest, it's a very, very, it's a great job. We're doing, we're doing great things for the world. And I don't really have to do that much because I'm the boss. So. Well, you got to love that. Yeah, I know. I'm in my room right now, staring at the Twin Towers and wishing that I could show them to you. Yeah, it's my view. So. But you see, I didn't get that way by just, you know, sitting down and, you know, even my professional life, you know, that I got that way because uh, I made sure that I really work hard and smart when I needed to. I got all my degrees when I was young and, uh, you know, I did my postgraduates and everything. So it was a lot of hard work along the way. You know, it just didn't fall into it. Even with writing, I put a lot of hard work in. And uh, I guess it doesn't sound like hard work when I say it because I pause so often and surf the net so often. But (laughs) it actually is a lot of dedication. And, you know, I've really had a lot of quarrels with my husband over this because I was so involved in setting up a second career and neglecting him. But in the end, it paid off. I wouldn't do a thing differently today. 
I think that the common thread amongst the most successful erotic writers is the fact that they work so hard. I mean, if you think about Selena Kitt, yeah. you think about Carl having written 150 stories before there were even there was even a Kindle. Amazing. Um, Amazing. You think about so many people, and it's really the common thread is that everyone's just working their butt off. I know for me, after I do my writing for the day or the week, I will then go and do the rest of my work, which includes managing the workload of four German translators and doing audiobooks and producing German audiobooks and everything else. And for example, right now, my big project is I just acquired a website, a social networking website, where people can go and ask sexual questions. And I'm changing in such a way that they can ask those erotic questions from erotic authors, which is kind of a fun thing, which hopefully pushes our industry forward. And just to plug a little bit, the website is rateabull.com, R-A-T-E-A-B-U-L-L.com. And it's, a, it's something to do to further industry, and it keeps me working very hard, just like everybody who's successful in the erotic industry does. Yeah, they never stopped, you know. Beginning writers usually is just like, oh, my book is not selling, and then they go in Kindle bots and announce it to the world, and... But the rest of us just slow on. We just, you know, some will sell and some won't sell, and we will learn along the way. And, right. you know, what sells today might not sell two months down the line. So it doesn't really matter as long as we keep having content and output. I would go by Dean Wesley Smith. I think he gives really good advice. The best marketing method they can do for your books is just to write the next book. This is true. I don't market, by the way. It's just content, putting out more output. I, I don't market at all. So I really think it's a waste of... I, I'm sorry. I don't think it's a waste of time. I'm sure it's... Uh, uh, some people have done very well by it, but it's a waste of my time. And I think I find it's amazing because I'm a marketing person in my day job, but I don't like to market my own books. I think the best marketing is just a well-written second book. Yeah. And speaking of well-written books, what will you be reading for us today? It's Indecent Proposition. So ladies and gentlemen, Aphrodite Hunt. Susan Chalmers looks at herself in the bathroom mirror and takes a deep breath. Okay, don't panic. You can do it. He's not as scary as everyone makes him to be, she mutters to herself. Then she freezes. She turns around to check if anyone's in the stalls of the 14th floor ladies' restroom. Wouldn't there have spies in the vicinity? None of the stall doors are closed, but you never know. So she does a cursory examination, her high heels going clack, clack, clack on the black and white tiles. I'm getting paranoid, she scolds herself. It's this intense competition that is getting to her, not to mention that slimy bastard Leonard Drake. Leonard is aiming to be the youngest VP in the company, and yes, she has to admit she's older by a full year than that sneaky 28-year-old who's always telling everyone he graduated from Stanford at the age 19 because he is some sort of accelerated homeschool genius. Well, she's older by exactly nine months, you want to be picky about it. But VP, oh, she can almost see her name in gold lettering on the door. Susan Chalmers, Vice President. She has earned her way to that promotion and she fully deserves the post. She has brought in the Stoughton contract worth $300 million. Okay, so let us neck to neck with her with a Haber contract to the tune of $350 million. But what is a mere $50 million, right? Her heart sinks. Actually, if they wanted to be picky about it, that $50 million could mean the whole world between the promotion and another few more years of waiting in the wings. It just so happened that Dan Barry, the previous VP, dropped dead of a heart attack. Susan was genuinely sorry about it, even though Dan was a lecher who liked to grope all the women and cheat on his wife. She looks at herself in the mirror again. She's attractive enough with her coppery curls and white brown eyes, but she has always wished she could be prettier and taller. 
But being pretty is not going to cut it with Mr. Channing Crawford, the CEO of Crawford Peterson and Fulham, Inc. As far as she knows, Mr. Crawford hasn't even looked at any woman in the company. Rumors might have about it that he was gay, had it not been for extreme alpha male masculinity and the way he seems to suck all the air out of a room. Nope, this is all going to be based on merit. Maybe she needs the extra $50 million after all. You can do it, girl. I would like to thank Artemis Hunt, otherwise known as Aphrodite Hunt, for joining me today. For all of Aphrodite Hunt's and Artemis Hunt's books, you can go to Amazon.com, as well as Barnes & Noble, and anywhere books are sold. And to check out her blog, go to AphroditeHunt.blogspot.com. Finally, would you like to know what type of erotica reader you are? As a special treat for our listeners, we at Sounds Erotic have created a free erotica personality quiz that will help you figure out what type of erotica reader you are. Go to soundseroticpodcast.com, take the quiz, and get books based on your exact erotica personality type. It's fun and kind of hot. Thank you again for joining me, Alex Anders, and please join me next time on Sounds Erotic.